If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up or open up maybe your Bible app on your smart device and navigate over there towards the end of the New Testament to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas celebration this past week. I know that my family and I did. It began obviously at Christmas Eve with our Christmas Eve worship gatherings and then continued when we got home that night and we all opened our first present, which we do on Christmas Eve. And as tradition dictates, it's always Christmas PJs. I don't know if any of you do the Christmas PJ thing. We do every year. And this year it was a nice like red and green and blue plaid. I think there's a selfie on my wife's Facebook if you want to track down and get a real good look at what it looks like. Uh, But we did that. And because I was preaching today, we decided not to go visit any family or anything until later this afternoon. And so that meant We didn't change out of those PJs until sometime Thursday. (laughs) And this is the third year in a row we've been able to do it. That's secretly why I keep preaching the last Sunday of the year. It's just to keep this tradition going. But it it honestly was exactly what we needed. Just a day to spend with each other, to relax a little bit, to rest a little bit, to remember why we celebrate Christmas. After all, the Advent season can be so busy. That as we look expectantly to the coming of Christmas Day, like those so long ago looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, we have so much that goes into our celebration. We buy trees and we decorate those trees and we put up lights and hang garland and set out nativity scenes and we watch special movies and sing special songs that we don't watch or sing any other time of the year and we bake cookies and we throw parties, and we just, we just do all kinds of things. The list could go on and on and on. But then there comes this moment, and sometimes it's Christmas night, sometimes it's a day or two after, but you're sitting there, you're looking around at all the wrapping paper strewn everywhere, you're noticing new gifts that are already being neglected, some of them still left in the box. You open the fridge and see all the leftovers you just can't convince yourself to throw away even though you know no one's going to eat them and it hits you. This is it. It's done. Christmas has come and gone and in essence, Advent is over. And some of us cannot stand that realization. We can't stand that feeling. I know that some of you have already begun counting down the days until next Christmas. In fact, a friend of mine tweeted out this past Thursday, only 365 days left till Christmas with an added little spike. Thanks a lot, leap year, giving us that extra day this year. But today I want us to try to break that cycle a little bit. It is completely appropriate that we put so much into the Advent season, that we put so much into celebrating Christmas. It's an extremely important day, but we all know that Christmas marks the beginning of something much more than it does the end of something. Advent's meant to be celebrated, but we don't have to mourn that time once it's completed. Because we can then consider and reflect upon all the work that began with that baby in that manger, in that stable. Work that continues today, even as we live in the second advent, awaiting Christ's promised return here to earth. And so today, as part of this sermon series we've been in, One Mediator, where we've been looking at this work that Christ carried out here on earth and in our lives today that began there at Christmas, I want us to look here at Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 18, and to consider together who Jesus is after Advent. 
So if you would, please follow along as I read verses 5 through 18 of Hebrews 2. For he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Hebrews is a letter. It's a letter to a church experiencing great persecution because of their faith And in it, the writer of Hebrews focuses on making a big deal about Jesus. One, because Jesus deserves having a big deal made about him. But two, also to be an encouragement to those readers. And so here in verse 5, he's transitioning from the first part of his letter where he's been making sure that everyone understands that Jesus is superior to angels. And he continues that here in verse 5 by saying that it's not to angels that the world to come has been subjected. They're not going to be the ones to have authority in the world to come. Well, that leaves the question then, well, who is going to have the authority in the world to come? Who is the world to come subjected to? And to answer that question, he quotes here from a psalm. He quotes from Psalm 8, but he kind of introduces his quotation from the psalm in a very unusual way. He says, someone somewhere has testified. Now, this, he doesn't do this because the writer of Hebrews all of a sudden forgot that this was from Psalm 8 and that he didn't know that David wrote this psalm. No, he was well aware of those things. But what he's doing is he's building some camaraderie with his readers. It would be similar to someone today saying something like, you know, Someone somewhere once sung, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. Or someone somewhere once wrote, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Or maybe someone somewhere once said, may the force be with you. 
See, just as those things are so pervasive in our culture that we think, oh, I know that Elvis sang that, or oh, I know that Tolkien wrote that, or oh, I know that Obi-Wan Kenobi said that. They would have heard these first words of Psalm 8. His readers would have as this letter was being read out loud in a gathering of God's people of the church. And they would have immediately said, Psalm 8, I know that. David wrote those words in Psalm 8. And the writer of Hebrews here begins quoting from Psalm 8 and verse 4 from that psalm. But I think it's helpful to get a little context. Even look at one verse before that. So in Psalm 8, this is, what verses three, this is how verses 3 through 6 read. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and subjected everything under his feet. The picture that David painted in the psalm is one of a man standing outside looking up at the night sky, seeing the moon hanging there surrounded by thousands upon thousands of stars, reflecting upon the vastness of God, how great is the creator of all these things that he can behold. And think, David didn't even have an inkling of a comprehension of just how big the universe is, but just by seeing that night sky, it leads him to say, when I look at this, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, I have to ask myself, what is man that you remember him, the son of man that you care for him. How amazing it is that you, the creator of this universe, you think about us people. Not only do you think about us, you care about us people. That you've set us a little lower than the angels. That's not a comment on a hierarchy. That's just a comment on location. We're not in the heavens. We're here on this earth, this great creation which you made for us. And that in making us and putting us here on earth, you crowned us with glory and honor and you subject everything to us, to people. As David stands outside and looks up in the night sky, he's reflecting upon Genesis 1, the creation account, specifically verses 26 through 28, which we're so familiar with, that we can read, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Humans people. We were the crowning achievement of God's creation in glory and honor, in fellowship with our creator, with everything in his creation subjected to us to rule over. That's what Psalm 8 was talking about. But of course, there's a problem. And this problem is that we look around us in the world today and things sure don't seem to be subjected to us. We're not ruling over much at all. There's disease, there's poverty, there's famine, there's injustices of all kinds. But even to get more specific and trivial somewhat, just in this past week in your holiday celebrations, how many of you had something that didn't go the way you wanted? It was not subjected under your feet. You could not rule over it. It didn't go your way. 
there's something wrong here. What happened after Psalm 8? What happened after Genesis 1? Well, the answer, of course, is Genesis 3 happened. Humankind, the crowning achievement of God's creation, with everything subjected under his feet, sinned. Disobey God, broke fellowship with the creator, exchanged the creator for things that were created, tried to do things their own way, and it went the wrong way. So they were stripped of their royal position and cast out of the perfect creation that he had made for them. And the writer of Hebrews acknowledges this, saying, as it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. But the writer of Hebrews continues, but we do see Jesus. And now the writer of Hebrews puts a spin on this psalm. He makes it not just about people, about man reflecting upon the greatness of God and being humbled at his concern for them, but he makes it a messianic psalm. He makes it about Christ. That now as he looks at it, we see that Jesus is the one crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the one who's ruling every, over everything with everything subjected under his feet. And when we think about it this way, it starts to make a lot more sense. That sounds a lot more correct. We're familiar with the idea of Jesus as king, the ruler over everything. But think for a moment about what kind of king Jesus is. He's not a king that just sits upon his throne and rules from on high, unaware of and out of touch with his subjects. He's not a distant king. Jesus is the kind of king who gets down in the dirt and muck with his people. In other words, Jesus is a king who lives among his people. He's a king who lives among his people. After all, that's what this first advent is all about, right? That a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The word made flesh. The king over the universe who has now come down to live among his people. This is what Paul was thinking about when he wrote that great hymn in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. When saying this about Christ, he wrote, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What happened in Philippians 2 occurred because Genesis 3 occurred. Jesus didn't look at our problem and say, wow, you guys really messed things up. He didn't look at us and say, you better get your act together. He didn't start immediately looking for all the ways that he could punish us and torture us for all the wrong things he had done. No, our king, he left his throne and he came. He gave up his status and his position and he lived here on earth as a person like you and like me. Sometimes we think about that baby boy laying in the manger and we think that he's got a little grin on his face because it's the mind of God going on inside his head. He's just thinking, man, if you guys only knew, it's really God in here. Ha ha, I got you. 
But we lose sight of, no, when Jesus came, he gave up that position and came here. He was still fully God, but he became fully human. He was a baby. He had to be fed. He had to be burped. He had to have his diaper changed because he made poopies. He had to learn to speak. He had to learn to walk. The God of the universe, boys and girls, had to learn to do math. He was a person. He was a man like you and me, and he came here like that. Because he had to, not because of some divine rule book that needed to be kept. No, he had to do this because it's his nature. It's it's who he is. It's the kind of king he is. And in coming, he proved that he alone is worthy of being that king. He alone is worthy of his crown of glory and honor. Not just by coming, but ultimately by dying. A few weeks ago, I know that many of us were here for Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God concert, and Andrew Peterson is one of my favorite God-honoring musical artists because it's not so much the music itself, but it's his lyrics. I love his lyrics. And probably my most favorite lyrics that he's ever written comes in the first song of Behold the Lamb of God. It's called Gather Round Ye Children Come. And it serves as the chorus, and it goes this way. So sing out with joy for the brave little boy who was God, but he made himself nothing Well, he gave up his pride and he came here to die like a man. That baby, boy, Jesus, born of Mary, born at Christmas, was the king, but he was also just a baby. He gave up his heavenly throne to come and to live among his people, making himself nothing for a time. And he came here for a specific reason. And that reason was to die like a man, as a man being human. And when he did so, he did so he revealed another aspect of his character after advent and that's this. Jesus is a champion who destroys his enemy and saves his people. Jesus is a champion who destroys his enemy and saves his people. Look at verse 10. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. I don't envy the job of Bible translators for a couple of different reasons. Number one is I'm no good at languages, including biblical languages. And my transcript from seminary will prove that to you. I mean, I didn't fail the classes, but you know, we're talking solid C student with Hebrew and Greek. So you don't want me translating your Bible for you. But the second reason why I don't envy them is because they have the unenviable task of taking the original language and trying to translate it in such a way that is both precise and accurate, but is also understandable and readable. And because they're people Sometimes I think they cannot get things quite as good as they could have. And there's an example here when in Hebrews 2, they refer to Jesus as the source of our salvation. The reason why I don't think this is great is source is really passive. It carries with it the idea is it being a place that something comes from or where something originates. And that's true about Jesus regards to salvation. Salvation comes from him. It originates from him, but he's also much more active in salvation beyond that. I think a better word here is champion. 
And some of your translations might use that. It also might use the word pioneer or captain. And the reason why they choose those words has to do with because we're kind of even limited in our understanding of what we think of when we think of the word champion. We just think of someone in a contest who wins. Therefore, they are the champion. There is even an older definition of the word champion that also means trailblazer, the one who makes a way. And both understandings of the word champion apply to Jesus Christ. He is both the winner of our salvation by destroying the enemy, but he's also the trailblazer, the one who makes the way of salvation for his people. So first, let's consider Jesus as the champion who destroys his enemy. In verse 14, we read that now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. In the 80s and 90s, boys and girls, we had something called human videos. And these were especially popular like youth group gatherings because we, it wasn't easy to make an actual video. And so what we would do is we would play a song and we'd all get like up on a stage in front of people and we'd act out the song. And one year in my youth group days, say 94, 95, I was invited to come stage a human video for our church's Sunday night worship service. And we decided to stage one set to a song by an artist called Carmen And the song was called The Champion. The Champion is a song that pictures Jesus and the devil in a boxing match with each other. And the angels and the demons are gathered around as the spectators, and God is the referee. And I set up strobe lights and spotlights in the balcony. We didn't have a lighting board, so I had everything just hooked up to surge protectors. So I was just running around the balcony the whole time, flipping on surge protector buttons. And one lady had a seizure as a result. It was really bad, but we, we managed to get through. And when, when, when the demons show up, they were hidden throughout the room, and the demons popped up, and they screamed at everyone, and a lot of the kids got scared. And then the demons went out, and then Satan comes in, then Jesus comes from the back, backlit by a spotlight, and comes forward. And then they get into the actual boxing, and Satan's got the upper hand, and he you know, lands a good uppercut, and it sends Jesus falling, and Jesus is out. He's knocked out. And then God begins the countdown. Ten. Nine. Eight, you get the idea. Three, two, one. And at one, all of a sudden, Jesus gets up and rises in the chorus. It says, he has won, he has won, he lives forevermore, he is risen, he is Lord, he has won. And Satan runs out and God grabs Jesus and raises his hand like he's rocking. He yells out, Adrian, not really, but he crowns Jesus as the ultimate champion. Now look, you shouldn't get your theology from Carmen. There's some other songs that are super bad. And this is really silly, but the picture is correct. Jesus is the champion because he is the winner. He has defeated the devil, and he did it through his death. Yes, he came and died, but he did not stay dead. He rose again from the grave, thus showing Satan that what power he thought he possessed in death wasn't any real power at all. And he actually showed him what real power truly was through the resurrection, that he alone possessed the power over sin and death. He destroyed the devil. 
But then we lead ourselves again to ask, but did he really? Is the devil really destroyed after all? Remember all the evil we see around us? All the sickness and the poverty and the famine and all the many types of injustices? But our answer is yes. The devil is defeated. Yes, the devil is destroyed. Yes, there's going to be a future fulfillment, but that doesn't change this present reality. Too many times when we think about God and Satan, we picture them like the Jedi and the Sith from Star Wars. God's got his blue lightsaber and Satan's got his red lightsaber and they're just locked in constant battle until hopefully, finally, the light side of the force is going to win. But that's a terrible way to think about it because there's no comparison between the devil and God. The devil's power is no real power at all. God has all the power. The devil's defeat, God has it done. He's it. It doesn't compare. He has won. He is the champion. The devil is destroyed. And how did he destroy it? Through his death. The writer of Hebrews here says that he tasted death for everyone. And again, I take issue with that word just because taste doesn't seem to do it. Like taste sounds like something you do like when your grandmother offers you a piece of fruitcake and you don't want to be rude about it. Like, well, I'll just have a little taste of it and then I can put it away and be done with it. Just a little nibble. That's not all, not at all how Jesus approached death. Um, Callie and I have actually had the opportunity to go on lots of short-term trips together, both here at Brook Hills as well as with some other organizations. And on those trips, we've eaten a lot of interesting things. Like, like she said, we've had camel milk, and it, I agree with her, it's not bad. I mean, I'm not going to put it on my cereal or anything, but, you know, it's fine. For what, some reason, multiple times in our trips, we've eaten crickets that people have served us. I guess, you know, it's a sustainable food source all over the world, so that's fine, crickets. But about 11 or 12 years ago, we were in the Philippines together, and we had the opportunity to try something called balut. There's actually a YouTube video of this if you want to try and track it down. But what balut is, is it's an egg, and it's a duck egg. It's a fertilized duck egg that's 18 to 21 days old, which means there's a little baby duckling in the egg. And they take the little baby duckling in the egg, and they hard boil it, and then you eat it. And they'd been talking to this about this all this throughout our whole trip until the final night we we're having a big feast together and one of the people there had their mom prepare balut just for us. It wasn't something you could say no to. And so I thought, well, I'm gonna do this the best way I know possible. I'm gonna crack that egg, I'm gonna peel everything off and then I'm just gonna pop that whole sucker in my mouth. Feathers, beak, bones and all. Just get it in there, take it in, get the whole thing done. And I made it through it, so to say. Now, this is a silly picture, but this is a picture of what it was like to, for Jesus to taste death. He didn't just nibble at it. It wasn't just a little bite. He fully consumed it. He took it on wholly and completely. He experienced death, and he was able to do that because he had come here to live among his people as a person. Then in his suffering to the point of death on the cross, he proved he's the perfect champion. He's the perfect king. That's why he's crowned the glory and honor, because he suffered death. And he's the trailblazer for our salvation. He made the way through his death by becoming the way. And how exactly was he able to do this? Well, because Jesus is a priest who makes propitiation. It's going to be here on the screen. Jesus is a priest 
who makes propitiation. Now, I know that those are two words we're unfamiliar with. One, because most of us don't come from a religious background that has priests. And the other, because it's a word we just don't use very much at all. In fact, some people would say, hey, in church nowadays, you don't really need to use words like these. They're kind of a barrier to people. They're not approachable. But I think these words are vitally important for us to understand the work that Jesus accomplished here on earth. And so let's first take that first one, priest. That Jesus is a priest. A priest is something different than a pastor. It's different than a minister because a priest is supposed to be an advocate between God and people. They're supposed to go to people and tell them all about God and how they should, what they should do in order to please God. And then the priest is supposed to go to God in order to try to appease him. In the Old Testament system, you might think of this involving lots of sacrifices being made in order to pay the penalty for the sins of the people, even for the priest himself. In fact, the high priest was just the one priest that was able to actually enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple where God was said to dwell. Just one priest could go in and represent all the people. Well, now, throughout this sermon series this month, we've been referring to Jesus as the one mediator, the go-between God and his people. And this is what we mean here when we talk about him as priest. He is the mediator, but he's more than just being a priest. He's our one mediator. He is the great high priest. The writer of Hebrews actually spends a great deal of time making this case. One of the summaries of it is found over in chapter 4, in verses 14 through 16, where he writes, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Jesus, our great high priest, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he experienced them for himself when he became human, when he became a man. Yet he did so without sin. And that's what makes him the great high priest, the perfect high priest. It's because he is not one who has to make sacrifices for God's people. He's actually the sacrifice himself because he's without sin. He takes it upon himself and he becomes the sacrifice. That's why he's the perfect high priest. And not just the perfect high priest, he's also a very specific kind. In verse 17, the writer writes, therefore he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. So merciful, not seeking to heap on more guilt and shame upon the people, not to get on their case about all the things that they should be doing, but to have mercy on them, to have compassion and kindness toward them, to be faithful to them, not just in the sense that he would always be there and would always be available, but also he was faithful because he would never let them down as every other priest that had come before had. He could not only make the sacrifice and make it stick, he would do so by becoming the sacrifice. And what does his becoming our sacrifice, taking our place in death on the cross, what did it accomplish? Well, it made propitiation. Here's what we've just read 
it says it made atonement. He makes atonement. And again, I don't envy the job of Bible translators. You know, they have to sit here. They see that this Greek word, it means propitiation. But that's a word that not everyone understands. So maybe we should just come up with something close. And atonement is so, so close. But it just doesn't quite get there. And here's why. Atonement is all about making amends. It's about making up for something wrong that's been done. But propitiation, it also involves atonement. It also involves making up for something, but it also involves making favorable the person who had done the wrong. So think about it this way. You're a kid, and you know you're not supposed to play with the markers, but you do so anyway, and you can't find the paper, but your house is surrounded by the greatest canvas of all, all these blank walls. And you take the marker to the walls. Even though you know it's not something you're supposed to do, you do it anyway. And mom or dad come around and they find what's been done. You've done wrong. You're guilty of this wrongdoing. You need to make atonement for the wrong. So what will you do? You will clean up the marker. You will try to scrub it off. Then maybe you'll have to repaint the wall. You will make up for it. You will atone for it. You will make it even possibly as if it had never happened before, which is the type of atonement that Jesus provides for our sins. But in order for you to make propitiation, you then have to change the way that mom and dad feel about you. You have to make it so that they're no longer angry with you. You have to make it so that they're no longer upset with you. And as you can guess, that's a lot harder to do. How can you affect the feelings of someone else and take away one feeling and replace it with another. But that's what propitiation is. And that's why it took Jesus Christ, not just to atone for our sins, but to make propitiation, to change the way that God feels about us because of our sin. Because up until that moment, that by grace through faith, we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, the way that God feels about us is wrathful. Paul makes this clear in Romans 1.18 where he says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But we see Jesus. And when he took our sin and died in our place, he certainly made atonement. He paid the penalty. He made up for all the sins that all mankind had ever committed and will ever commit. But he also made propitiation. He changed us so that we were no longer sinners. We were now saints. And in doing so, he adjusted how God feels about us so that he is no longer wrathful toward us. We no longer have to live in fear of death, fearing his punishment that comes at the result of that death because we no longer deserve that punishment. He has taken that away from us and he has taken God's wrath and he has sent it away. When he changes how God feels about us, it's not just that God comes back to neutral. It's not like he's over here, super upset with us, super mad at us, wrathful toward us, and then he just comes back to the middle and just feels kind of neutral about us. No, God moves toward us equal to the amount of distance we had from him in our sin. He goes from being wrathful towards us to being completely and intimately in love with us. He embraces us and makes us now so that we're no longer separated from him, but we are an intimate part of his family. When we see that, we see this about Jesus, that he is a brother who loves his family. Jesus is a brother who loves his family. 
Think of all the different titles that we use for Jesus. Lord and Savior, uh, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Prophet, Priest, King. could go on and on and on. But what about brother? We don't often use brother to refer to Jesus. But that's what we see here in Hebrews 2. And we see it because it's how Jesus identifies himself by identifying who we are to him. Then in verse 11, Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. And why does he do that? Because we have the same father, those who need to be sanctified, those who need to be made holy, and the one who sanctifies, the one who makes us holy, us and Jesus, we have the same father because we've been adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. That's why he refers to us that way back in verse 10. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote about this and made it very clear in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 5, when he wrote this about God, that he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. God's plan all along was to have a family, was to adopt us as his sons and daughters, that Jesus Christ, God the Son, could become our brother. And we know this when he calls us brothers and sisters. He does this with three quotations here in Hebrews 2. The first one coming from Psalm 22, which is the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But later in that psalm is what he's quoting here when he says that I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. This further reveals another purpose to Jesus leaving his throne and coming here to earth as a man. He came to show us who God is, to tell us about him so that we might glorify him in learning about him and coming to trust him and being saved for his sake and his glory. Those next two quotations then show us how that happens. They come from Isaiah 8 with Jesus confessing that he, in his time here on earth, he trusted in the Father. That's why he calls us to trust in him as well, to put our faith in him, and that when we do, we become sons and daughters of God. We become brothers and sisters that God the Father gives lovingly to his Son and entrusts us to him. And why does he do this? Because he loves us. He tasted death for everyone. And he did that because he loves everyone. John 3.16 makes that super clear. For God so loved the world, everyone. He gave his one only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he proved this love, as Romans 5.8 tells us, in that while we were still sinners, while we were still deserving of God's wrath, Jesus out of God's love, died for us completely and wholly consumed that death, taking our place. He loves us as family and makes us his family. And think about what kind of family this is. It's a royal family. Our brother is King Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And now as in verse 10, the father of the king is bringing many sons and daughters to glory with Jesus. What he's doing here is he's restoring Psalm 8. 
He's restoring Genesis 1. He's redeeming Genesis 3. He's putting it back so that in the world to come, all things will be subjected to us because we will be with Jesus. Think about the book of Revelation. Revelation 5, we studied last week, because we see the throne room of the Lamb. That carries into Revelation 7, where we see a great multitude surrounding the throne. People from every tribe, nation, language, and people. And they're praising God. They're crying out, glory to God, praising the Lamb, worshiping Him. But they're there in the throne room not just to worship Jesus. They're there in the throne room because they are Jesus' royal court. We will be there. Our brothers and sisters of Christ will be there. People, brothers and sisters from every nation on earth will be there with us because we are the royal court, the princes and the princesses of King Jesus. They're to reign with him forever. That is a crazy idea. But it is true. It is true, and Paul has written about it. In 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, where he said, This saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remember, for he is not subjected to the angels, the world to come that we are talking about. He has subjected it to Jesus Christ. But also in quoting Psalm 8, we see this clear. He has subjected it to us who reign with our brother, the king, forever and ever. He's leading us now to that. When we follow him, that's where he's leading us, to that glory with him, to that throne room of his to reign with him. But the journey of following him on that road will not be easy. And therefore we know that we need him. And so praise God that Jesus is also a friend who helps us. He's a friend who helps us. We aren't merely his royal subjects. We're not just his servants. Those, those things are true. We're his family, but we're also his friends. On the night before he died, Jesus talking to his closest followers, he made this clear to them. And one of those followers, John, recorded it in verse 15 of chapter 15 where he wrote that Jesus said, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. King Jesus left his throne and he came here to earth to live among his people, to die for our sins to rise from that grave and to prove that he has the power, that he is the champion who destroys his enemy, but who blazes the way to salvation for his people. And he did this as the great, perfect high priest who makes propitiation, who atones for our sins and satisfies God's wrath so that now God lovingly and graciously adopts us into his family, making his son our brother and leading us home to glory, to reign with him forever and ever. And in the meantime, in the meantime, we have our friend Jesus with us to help us. So as you wrap up 2019 and you head into 2020, are you suffering? Are you hurting? Because our friend and brother Jesus suffered even to the point of death, death on a cross? Are you facing temptation? 
Do you feel sin's pull on your life? Our friend and brother Jesus experienced every temptation yet did not sin. Are you overwhelmed by the one mission that we are given from our one mediator to go and to make disciples of all peoples everywhere? Jesus too was overwhelmed by the mission the father had given him. He even cried out in the garden that it would be taken from him. But he trusted in God and calls you to do the same. And every step along the way from this year into the new year into every year beyond, every step along the way, no matter what we might experience, no matter what we might face, Jesus is there with us and we can rely on the help that he provides us. So my prayer for us as we go into this new year is may that be our resolution. May we resolve to do that. Above what weight we want to lose, above what career accomplishments we want to achieve, above what money we want to make, above what new experiences we want to have, may we prayerfully consider with one another how to love Jesus more, how to grow in our faith and knowledge of him, how to take new steps in making new disciples here in our city and around the world. And as we do those things, may we resolve to rely upon his help every step of the way.